0: Chapter 11 of The Plastic Age by Percy Marks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After the Sanford-Raleigh game, the college seemed to be slowly dying. The boys held countless post-mortems over the game, explaining to each other just how it had been lost and how it could have been won. They watched the newspapers eagerly as the sports writers announced their choice for the so-called All-American team. If Slade was on the team, the writer was conceded to know his dope. If Slade wasn't, the writer was a dumbbell. But all this pseudo-excitement was merely picking at the covers. There was no real heart in it. Gradually, the football talk died down freshmen ceased to write themes about sanford's great fighting spirit sex and religion once more became predominant at the bull sessions studies too began to find a place in the sun our examinations were coming and most of the boys knew that they were miserably prepared lights were burning in fraternity houses and dormitories until late at night and mighty little of their glow was shed on poker parties and crap games. The college had begun to study. When Hugh finally calmed down and took stock, he was horrified and frightened to discover how far he was behind in all his work. He had done his lessons sketchily from day to day, but he really knew nothing about them, and he knew that he didn't. Since Morse's departure, he had loafed, trusting to luck and the knowledge he had gained in high school. So far he had escaped a summons from the dean, but he daily expected one, and the mere thought of our examinations made him shiver. He studied hard for a week, succeeding only in getting gloriously confused and more frightened. The examinations proved be easier than he had expected he didn't fail in any of them but he did not get a grade above a c the examination flurry passed and the college was left cold nothing seemed to happen the boys went to the movies every night had a peanut fight talked to the shadowy actors they played cards pool and billiards or shot craps Saturday nights, many of them went to a dance at Hastings, a small town five miles away. They held bull sessions and discussed everything under the sun and some things beyond it. They attended a performance of Shaw's Candida, given by the Dramatic Society, and voted it a wet show, and incidentally some of them studied. But all in all, life was rather tepid, and most of the boys were merely marking time and waiting for Christmas vacation. For Hugh, the vacation came and went with a rush. It was glorious to get home again, glorious to see his father and mother, and at first glorious to see Helen Simpson. But Helen had begun to pall. Her kisses hardly compensated for her conversation. She gave him a little feeling of guilt, too which he tried to argue away. Kissing isn't really wrong. Everybody pets. At least Carl says they do. Helen likes it, but... Always that but intruded itself. But it doesn't seem quite right when... I don't really love her. When he kissed her for the last time before returning to college, he had a distinct feeling of relief. Well, that would be off his mind for a while, anyway. It was a sober, quiet crowd of students, for the first time they were students, that returned to their desks after the vacation. The final examinations were ahead of them, less than a month away, and those examinations hung over their heads like the relentless, glittering blade of a guillotine. The boys studied college life ceased. There was a brief period of education. Of course, they did not desert the movies, and the snow and ice claimed them. Part of Indian Lake was scraped free of snow, and every clear afternoon hundreds of boys skated happily, explaining afterward that they had to have some exercise if they were going to be able to study. On those afternoons the lake was a pretty sight zestful alive with color many of the men wore blue sweaters some of them brightly colored mackinaws all of them knitted toques as soon as the cold weather arrived the freshmen had been permitted to substitute blue toques with orange tassels for their baby bonnets the blue and orange stood out vividly against the white snow-covered hills and the skates rang sharply as they cut the glare ice there was snowshoeing skiing and sliding to keep a fellow fit so that he could do good work in his exams but much as the boys enjoyed the winter sports a black pall hung over the college as the examination period drew nearer and nearer the library which had been virtually deserted all term suddenly became crowded every afternoon and evening its big tables were filled with serious-faced lads earnestly bending over books making notes running their fingers through their hair occasionally looking up with dazed eyes, or twisting about miserably. The tension grew greater and greater. The upper classmen were quiet and businesslike, but most of the freshmen were frankly terrified. A few of them packed their trunks and slunk away, and a few more openly scorned the examinations and their frightened classmates, but they were the exceptions. All the buoyancy seemed gone out of the college. Nothing was left but an intense strain. The dormitories were strangely quiet at night. There was no playing of golf in the hallways, no rolling of bats down the stairs. No shouting, no laughter. A man who made any noise was in danger of a serious beating. Even the greetings, as the men passed each other on the campus, were quiet and abstracted. They ceased to cut classes. Everybody attended, and everybody paid close attention even to the most tiresome instructors. Studious seniors began to reap a harvest out of tutoring sections. The meetings were a dollar a throw, and for another dollar a student could get a mimeographed outline, of a course. But the tutoring sections were only for the plutes or the athletes, many of whom were subsidized by fraternities or alumni. Most of the students had to learn their own lessons, so they often banded together in small groups to make the task less arduous, finding some relief in sociability. The study groups, quite properly called seminars, would have shocked many a worthy professor had he been able to attend one, but they were truly educative, and to many students inspiring. The professor had planted the seed of wisdom with them. It was at the seminars that they tried honestly, if somewhat hysterically and irreverently, to make it grow. Hugh did most of his studying alone, fearing that the seminars would degenerate into bowl sessions, as many of them did, but Carl insisted that he join one group that was going to wipe up that goddamned English course tonight. There were only five men at the seminar, which met in Surrey 19, because Pudge Jamieson, who was rating an A in the course, and was therefore an authority, said that he wouldn't come if there were any more. Pudge, as his nickname suggests, was plump. He was a round-faced, jovial youngster who learned everything with consummate ease, wrote with great fluency and sometimes real beauty, peered through his horn-rimmed spectacles amusedly at the world, and read every smut-book that he could lay his hands on. His library of erotica was already famous throughout the college. His volumes of Balzac's Droll Stories, Rabelais' Complete, Mademoiselle de Maupin, Burton's Arabian Nights, and The Decameron being in constant demand. He could tell literally hundreds of dirty stories, always having a new one on tap, always looking when he told it like a complacent cherub. There were two other men in the seminar. Freddie Dixon, an earnest, anemic youth, seemed to be always striving for greater acceleration and never gaining it, or as Pudge put it, the trouble with Freddie is that he's always shifting gears. Larry Stillwell, the last man, was a dark handsome youth with exceedingly regular features pomaded hair parted in the centre and shining sleekly fine teeth and rich colouring a smooth boy who prided himself on his conquests and the fact that he never got a grade above a c in his courses there was no man in the freshman class with a finer mind but he declined to study declaring firmly that he could not waste his time acquiring impractical tastes for useless arts. "'Now everybody shut up,' said Pudge, seating himself in a big chair and laboriously crossing one leg over the other. "'Put some more wood on the fire, Hugh, will you?' Hugh stirred up the fire, piled on a log or so, and then returned to his chair hoping against belief that something really would be accomplished in the seminar. All the boys he accepted were smoking, and all of them were lolling back in dangerously comfortable attitudes. We've got to get going, Pudge continued, and we aren't going to get anything done if we just sit around and bowl. I'm the prof, and I'm going to ask questions. Now, don't bowl if you don't know just say no soap and if you do know shoot your dope he grinned how's that for a rhyme add a boy carl exclaimed enthusiastically shut up now the stuff we want to get at tonight is the poetry no use spending any time on the composition my prof said that we would have to write themes in the exam but we can't do anything about that here you're all getting by on your themes anyway aren't you yeah the listening quartet answered in unison larry Stillwell added dubiously well i'm getting c's larry said carl in cold contempt you're a goddamn liar I saw a B on one of your themes the other day, and an A on another. What are you always pulling that lowbrow stuff for? Larry had the grace to blush. Ah, he explained in some confusion. My prof's full of hooey. He doesn't know a C theme from an A one. He makes me sick. He... Ah, shut up, Freddie Dixon shouted. Let's get going. Let's get going. We gotta learn this poetry. Damn, I don't know anything about it. I didn't crack the book till two days ago. Pudge took charge again. Close your gabs, everybody, he commanded sternly. There's no sense in going over the prose lit. You can do that better by yourselves. God knows I'm not going to waste my time telling you boneheads what Carlyle means by a hero. If you don't know Odin from Mohammed by this time, you can roast in Dante's hell for all of me. Now listen. The prof said that they were going to make us place lines, and of course they'll expect us to know what the poems are about. Hell, how some of the boys are going to fox em. He paused to laugh. Jim Hicks told me this afternoon that Philomela was by Shakespeare. The other boys did not understand the joke, but they all laughed heartily. Now, he said, I'll give you the name of a poem, and then you tell me what it's about and who wrote it. He leafed rapidly through an anthology. Carl, who wrote Kubla Khan? Carl puffed his pipe meditatively. I'm going to fox you, Pudge, he said frankly, triumphant. I know. Coleridge wrote it. It seems to be about a Jew who built a swell joint for a wild woman, or something like that. I can't make much out of the damn thing. That's enough. Smack for Carl, said Pudge approvingly. Smack meant that the answer was satisfactory. Freddy, who wrote La Belle Dame Saint-Merci? Freddy twisted in his chair, thumped his head with his knuckles, and finally announced with a groan of despair, No soap. Hugh? No soap. Larry? Well, drawled Larry, I think John Keats wrote it. It's one of those bedtime stories with a kick. A knight gets picked up by a Jane. He puts her on his prancing steed and beats it for the tall timber. Keats isn't very plain about what happened there, but I suspect the worst. Anyhow, the knight woke up the next morning with an awful rotten taste in his mouth. Smack for Larry. Your turn, Carl. Who wrote The West Wind? You can't get me on that boy Macefield, Pudge. I know all his stuff. There isn't any story. It's just about The West Wind. But it's a goddamn good poem. It's The Cat's Pajamas. You said it, Carl, Hugh chimed in. But I like sea fever better. I must go down to the seas again. To the lonely sea and the sky. Gosh, that's hot stuff. August nineteen fourteen's a peach, too. Yeah, agreed Larry languidly. I got a great kick when the prof read that in class. Macefield's all right. I wish we had more of his stuff and less of Milton. Lord Almighty, how I hate Milton! What the hell do they have to give us that tripe for? Oh, let's get going, Freddy pleaded, running a nervous hand through his mouse-colored hair. Shoot a question, Pudge. All right, Freddy. Pudge tried to smile wickedly, but succeeded only in looking like a beaming cherub. Tell us who wrote the ode on intimations of immortality from recollections of early childhood what a title!' "'Freddy groaned. "'I know that Wadsworth wrote it, "'but that is all that I do know about it. "'Wordsworth, Freddy,' Carl corrected him. "'Wordsworth. Henry W. Wordsworth. "'Gee, Carl, thanks. I thought it was William.' "'There was a burst of laughter, and then Pudge explained. "'It is William, Freddy.' Don't let Peters razz you. Just for that, Carl, you tell what it's about. No soap, said Carl decisively. I know, Hugh announced, excited and pleased. Shoot. Well, it's this reincarnation business. Wordsworth thought you lived before you came on to this earth, and everything was fine when you were a baby but it got worse when you got older. That's about all. It's kind of bugs, but I like some of it. It isn't bugs, Pudge contradicted flatly. It's got sense. You do lose something as you grow older, but you gain something too. Wordsworth admits that. It's a wonderful poem, and you're dumb if you can't see it. HE WAS VERY SERIOUS AS HE TURNED THE PAGES OF THE BOOK, AND LAID HIS PIPE ON THE TABLE AT HIS ELBOW. NOW LISTEN, THIS STANZA HAS THE DOPE FOR THE WHOLE POEM. HE READ THE FAMOUS STANZA SIMPLY AND EFFECTIVELY. OUR BIRTH IS BUT A SLEEP AND A FORGETTING, THE SOUL THAT RISES WITH US, OUR LIFE'S STAR, HATH HAD ELSEWHERE ITS SETTING, AND COMETH FROM AFAR. Not in entire forgetfulness, and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. Shades of the prison-house begin to close upon the growing boy, but he beholds the light, and whence it flows, he sees it in his joy. The youth who daily farther from the east must travel still is nature's priest and by the vision splendid is on his way attended at length the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day there was a moment's silence when he finished and then hugh said reverently that is beautiful read the last stanza will you pudge so pudge read the last stanza and then the boys got into an argument over the possible truth of the thesis of the poem freddie finally brought them back to the task in hand with his plaintive plea we've gotta get going it was two o'clock in the morning when the seminar broke up hugh admitting to carl after their visitors departed that he had not only learned a lot but that he had enjoyed the evening heartily. The college grew quieter and quieter as the day for the examinations approached. There were seminars on everything, even on the best way to prepare cribs. Certain students with low grades and less honor would sometimes gravitate together and discuss plans for foxing the profs. Opinions differed, One man usually insisted that notes in the palm of the left hand were safe from detection, only to be met by the objection that they had to be written in ink, and if one's hand perspired, and it was sure as hell to. Nothing was left but an inky smear. Another held that a fellow could fasten a rubber band on his forearm and attach the notes to those, pulling them down when needed and then letting them snap back out of sight into safety. But, one of the conspirators was sure to object, what the hell are you going to do if the band breaks? Some of them insisted that notes placed in the inside of one's galoshes. All the students wore them, but took them off in the examination room. Could be easily read. Yeah, but the proctors are wise to that stunt and so ad infinitum eventually all the stunts were used and many more not that all the students cheated everything considered the percentage of cheaters was not great but those who did cheat usually spent enough time evolving ingenious methods of preparing cribs and in preparing them to have learned their lessons honestly and well The night before the first examinations, the campus was utterly quiet. Suddenly Bedlam broke loose. Somehow every dormitory that contained freshmen became a madhouse at the same time. Hugh and Carl were in Surrey 19, earnestly studying. Freddie Dixon flung the door open and shouted hysterically, The general science exams out! Hugh and Carl whirled around in their desk chairs. "'What?' they shouted together. "'Yeah, one of the fellows saw it. A girl that works at the press copied down the exam and gave it to him. "'What fellow? Where's the exam?' "'I don't know who the guy is, but Hubert Manning saw the exam. "'Hugh and Carl were out of their chairs in an instant.' and the three boys rushed out of Surrey in search of Banning. They found him in his room, telling a mob of excited classmates that he hadn't seen the exam, but that Harry Smithson had. Away went the crowd in search of Smithson, Carl and Hugh and Freddy in the midst of the excited, chattering lads. Smithson hadn't seen the exam, but he had heard that Putty McCumber had a copy. Freshmen were running up and down stairs in the dormitories, shouting, Have you seen the exam? No, nobody had seen the exam, but some of the boys had been told definitely what the questions were going to be. No two seemed to agree on the questions, but everybody copied them down and then rushed on to search for a bona fide copy. They hurried from dormitory to dormitory constantly shouting the same question. Have you seen the exam? There were men in every dormitory with a new list of questions, which were hastily scratched into notebooks by the eager seekers. Until midnight the excitement raged. Then the campus quieted down as the freshmen began to study the long lists of questions. God, said Carl, as he scanned his list hopelessly, These damn questions cover everything in the course, and some things that I know damn well weren't in it. What a lot of nuts we were. Let's go to bed. Carl, Hugh wailed despondently. I'm going to flunk that exam. I can't answer a tenth of these questions. I can't go to bed. I've got to study. Oh, Lord. Don't be a triple-plated jackass. Come on to bed. You'll just get woozy if you stay up any longer. All right, Hugh agreed wearily. He went to bed, but many of the boys stayed up and studied, some of them all night. The examinations were held in the gymnasium. Hundreds of classroom chairs were set in even rows. Nothing else was there, not even the gymnasium apparatus. A few years earlier, a wily student had sneaked into the gymnasium the night before an examination and written his notes on a dumbbell hanging on a wall. The next day he calmly chose the seat in front of the dumbbell and proceeded to write a perfect examination. The annotated dumbbell was later found, and after that the walls were stripped clean of apparatus before the examinations began. At a few minutes before nine, the entire freshman class was grouped before the doors of the gymnasium, nervously talking, some of them glancing through their notes, others smoking, some of them so rapidly that the cigarettes seemed to melt, others walking up and down, muttering and mumbling, all of them so excited, so tense that they hardly knew what they were doing. Hugh was trying to think of a dozen answers to questions that popped into his head, and he couldn't think of anything. Suddenly the doors were thrown open. Yelling, shoving each other about, fairly dancing in their eagerness and excitement, the freshmen rushed into the gymnasium. Hugh broke from the mob as quickly as possible, hurried to a chair, and snatched up a copy of the examination. That was lying on its broad arm at the first glance he thought that he could answer all the questions a second glance revealed four that meant nothing to him for a moment he was dizzy with hope and despair and then all at once he felt quite calm he pulled off his galoshes and prepared to go to work within three minutes the noise had subsided There was a rustling as the boys took off their ba-ba coats and galoshes, but after that there was no sound save the slow steps of the proctors pacing up and down the aisle. Once Hugh looked up, thinking desperately, almost seizing an idea that floated nebulous and necessary before him. A proctor that he knew caught his eye and smiled fatuously, Hugh did not smile back. He could have cried in his fury. The idea was gone forever. Some of the students began to write immediately. Some of them leaned back and stared at the ceiling. Some of them chewed their pencils nervously. Some of them leaned forward mercilessly, pounding a knee. Some of them kept running one or both hands through their hair. Some of them wrote a little and then paused to gaze blankly before them or to tap their teeth with a pen or pencil. All of them were concentrating with an intensity that made the silence electric. That proctor's idiotic smile had thrown Hugh's thoughts into what seemed hopeless confusion. But a small incident almost immediately brought order and relief. The gymnasium cat was wandering around the rear of the gymnasium. It attracted the attention of several of the students and of a proctor. Being very careful not to make any noise, he picked up the cat and started for the door. Almost instantly every student looked up, and then the stamping began. Four hundred freshmen stamped in rhythm to the proctor's steps, He blushed violently, tried vainly to look unconcerned, and finally disappeared through the door with the cat. Hugh had stamped lustily and laughed in great glee at the proctor's confusion. Then he returned to his work, completely at ease, his nervousness gone. One hour passed, two hours. Still the freshmen wrote, still the proctors paced up and down. Suddenly a proctor paused, stared intently at a youth who was leaning forward in his chair, walked quickly to him and picked up one of his galoshes. The next instant he had a piece of paper in his hand and was walking down the gymnasium after beckoning to the boy to follow him. The boy shoved his feet into his galoshes, pulled on his ba-ba coat, and his face white and strained marched down the aisle the proctor spoke a few words to him at the door he nodded opened the door left the gymnasium and five hours later the college thus the college for ten days the better students moderately calm the others cramming information into aching heads drinking unbelievable quantities of coffee, sitting up, many of them, all night, attending seminars or tutoring sessions, working for long hours in the library, finally taking the examination, only to start a new nerve-wracking grind in preparation for the next one. If a student failed in a course, he received a flunk notice from the registrar's office within four days after the examination, so that four days after the last examination, every student knew whether he had passed his courses or not. All those who failed to pass three courses were, as the students put it, flunked out, or as the registrar put it, their connection with the college was severed. Some of the flunkies took the news very casually, packed their trunks, sold their furniture, and departed. Others frankly wept, or hastened, to their instructors to plead vainly that their grades be raised. All of them were required to leave Haydensville at once. Hugh passed all of his courses, but without distinction. His B in trigonometry did not give him great satisfaction, inasmuch as he had received an A in exactly the same course in high school. Nor was he particularly proud of his B in English, since he knew that with a little effort he could have pulled an A. The remainder of his grades were C's and D's, mostly D's. He felt almost as much ashamed as Freddie Dixon, who somehow hadn't got going and had been flunked out. Carl received nothing less than a C, and his record made Hugh more ashamed of his own. Carl never seemed to study, but he hadn't disgraced himself. Hugh spent many bitter hours thinking about his record. What would his folks think? Worse, what would they say? Finally he wrote to them, Dear Mother and Dad, I have just found out my grades. I think that they will be sent to you later. Well I didn't flunk out, but my record isn't so hot. Only two of my grades are any good. I got a B in English and Math, but the others are all C's and D's. I know that you will be ashamed of me, and I'm awfully sorry. I've thought of lots of excuses to write to you, but I guess I won't write them. I know that I didn't study hard enough. I had too much fun. I promise you that I'll do better next time. I know that I can. Please don't scold me. Lots of love, Hugh. All that his mother wrote in reply was, Of course you will do better next time. The kindness hurt dreadfully, Hugh wished that she had scolded him. End of chapter Eleven.